0: Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking with Vashawn Young about the book Other People's English, Code Meshing, Code Switching and African American Literacy. It's a book that challenges the code switching approach to the teaching of so-called standard English and proposes and defends an alternative, code meshing. In this interview, we discuss some of the problems associated with code switching and the challenges and opportunities opened up by code meshing as well as touching on some of the broader issues associated with African-American language education. I'm delighted to welcome Vashon Mashanti Young, a.k.a. Dr. Vey, the host of New Books in African-American Studies, to talk about his new book, Other People's English, in which he and his co-authors advocate code meshing as an approach to language pedagogy. Veshaume- This is a co-written book, but I get the impression that your ideas are somewhat the catalyst for it. Would that be a fair assessment?
1: That is exactly right. Um, The idea of of code meshing, which is a neologism of mine that goes back to 2004, um, is the through line of the book.
0: And this is something which has been embraced by, you know, at least the the co-authors and uh, I feel that they've really taken that idea on board and applying it in a range of settings.
1: That's right. Um, It might be actually appropriate to define what I mean by um, code meshing uh, because it it is something that is um, relatively new, being something that's been used in the – within the – recent decade, I I should say. But code meshing um, is an educational term um, in literacy studies that actually um, refers to what linguists mean by uh, metaphorical code switching, which is to say this is the blending of two or more languages language systems or dialects in one speech act. And that's what we mean by code meshing. So blending African-American English with standard English um, or African-American English with academic discourse within one speech act or within one paper.
0: As you mentioned, the the idea of of code switching as defined in language pedagogy seems to be a rather narrower idea from what linguists or people in linguistics mean by code switching. Do you feel that something's kind of been lost maybe accidentally or maybe even intentionally in the transition between disciplines. Definitely.
1: Um, (laughs) It's interesting that you said uh, that it might be um, intentionally. and Actually, I I think so, Um, but I think it's also unintentional. The intentionality of using code switching in a reductive manner in educational contexts stems from uh, teachers thinking that it is best to educate African American students in ways that would help them uh, keep their African American English separate from standard English, and in that sense it's quite intentional to um, present uh code switching as Um, leaving one dialect completely or one language system completely and taking on another without the interference or influence of that native or prior uh, language system. So in that way, it is intentional. But in some ways, it's unintentional. And um, I think in this way, I believe that teachers overall, educators in K through 12 education in the U.S., um, do not have a, a wide grasp of of linguistics Um, as a matter of fact I don't even think they have a narrow grasp of linguistics I think the the um, linguistic education of teachers need to be expanded in the K through 12 system and so it's I think that when they hear code switching um, as posited as a as a pedagogy uh, that they unintentionally take it up as a linguistic pedagogy because they're not really trained in linguistics. Even in English language arts education or elementary education, linguistics is is probably a secondary, if not tertiary, uh, study to their programs.
0: And the particular way in which you feel that the the richness of code-switching from a linguistic point of view has been neglected is that the kind of code-switching that is practiced in language pedagogy is something which you argue, actually reinforces uh, inequality of power and prestige and and, um, in some sense embraces that. Would that be a fair summary?
1: It would. As I understand it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, being a linguist yourself, is that linguists, when they identify language systems, they don't posit one as being superior to the other, that all uh, language systems or languages have the ability to communicate. Um, They all have a a range of registers, um, formal, informal, and middle range. And you can't say that that this language is somehow more effective uh, than another language. However, code switching, as it is adopted and um, taught by educators, actually do, whether it's intentionally or not, posit one language as better than the other or more superior than the other in certain contexts. so in school context or professional context teachers often say that standard English quote-unquote is better or more superior even if they don't use those terms than African-American English and it posits a um... inequality of people who are associated with those language systems so uh, a number of linguists In the U.S. have um, theorized that standard English is based on the speech patterns and habits of middle and upper class Midwestern white people. And of course, it goes without saying that African-American English is based on the historical, cultural, uh, linguistic patterns of uh, black people, primarily in the U.S. And so when you say that in school, or in one type of assignment, that one English is better than the other. You're actually creating a hierarchy of languages.
0: It's interesting because it's from a linguistic point of view, it's something that has historically happened, or at least it sim- seems to be a an error that people spontaneously fall into time and again to assume that one language rather than another is the appropriate language for a particular function. Um, but of course, from a from a linguistic point of view, it's it's not borne out except in if you like, certain very marginal cases where a language doesn't have uh, the vocabulary to deal with a particular area. In this case, we're dealing much more with with um, differences in syntax and morphology, as I understand it. Yes, I,
1: I think so. But um, you might have to, to say a bit more about what you mean by syntax and morphology in this context, because I think that one of the The things that I argue is that even on a morphological or syntactical level, that uh, standard English can be blended with African-American English because the uh, language systems overlap in so many ways.
0: Indeed, yes, and it's argued in the book, uh, moreover, that African-American English has in certain respects more expressive power than standard (laughs) English.
1: Exactly, yes. That's one of the interesting uh things about this debate is that one of the one of the um consequences, one of the problematic if you will or deleterious consequences of code switching is that for African Americans Who do it in um, academic settings or in professional settings, uh, we argue that they lose a kind of expressivity. They lose a kind of power and effectiveness that they would otherwise have if they were allowed to use African American English in those contexts. We actually state this over and over again and have pointed to others such as novelist Toni Morrison who has said that disallowing um, African Americans' um from not using african american english actually is a is a cruel fallout of racism that that the language is much more expressive and to say that a language that is less expressive in this case standard english which is less expressive than african american english is better is is not a result of effective communication but a result of prejudice
0: and you mentioned that it was while you were working as an english teacher that you Started to become really aware of that of that issue and your thinking developed around around code switching versus code meshing And can you reconstruct any of the sort of development of those ideas?
1: Well as an african-american person myself, um, I Thought that the best thing to do growing up was to do uh, code switching that is to say to not use african-american rhetoric um, use African-American speech styles and African-American grammar in public spaces. As a matter of fact, I thought that the people who used African-American English um, were ineffective communicators and and in, in some ways bad people. Even though I'm African-American myself, I held these problematic prejudicial views. When I was an English teacher, I noticed that uh, my students... Uh, at when I taught African American students were not eager to um, leave their uh, African American English and to adopt code switching behaviors. But what was interesting is that those students who were eager to leave African American English and to um, gain uh, a wider and greater facility in standard English, they themselves were unable to completely leave the African-American English and so I I saw them struggle uh, with trying to uh, prevent themselves from using African-American English but time and time again that influencing their writing and in many ways I thought that that influence was much more stronger much more effective and more interesting than um, (laughs) in many ways the dull standard English they they were trying to manufacture.
0: Absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, it's uh, obviously common ground to both sides in the debate, The if you like, code switching versus code meshing, that ultimately it's you know, very desirable to have people who are able to command a wide range of styles. Would it would it be right to say that there's, a, if you like, a disagreement is, is about how you get there, whether, in some sense, what people are trying to do within the code switching paradigm is to get there via a route that's unnecessarily Destructive or hostile or polarizing even within people as to how they how they feel about their own languages
1: I don't think that most people who are code switching advocates at least not the ones that I have read the teachers or uh, uh, Educational theorists who are code switching advocates actually believe um, That they're helping students to develop a, a wide repertoire of styles that they can use effectively in any situation I really don't. I think that what they are after is teaching students to use two different styles in um, different situations. And so those that repertoire is not able to be used holistically in any one space. They have to be completely separate. Um, and there's uh, evidence uh, to this effect uh, in the book when we um, Uh, cite some of the theorists and work with some of their ideas that are unnecessarily restrictive. So both the process is restrictive and the end goal that they uh, hope for is is restrictive.
0: That's interesting because as is discussed elsewhere in the book, it's not the case that people are able really to suppress their, if you like, native variety. Regardless of, of what that variety is it's you, know, you remark that among other cultures among other groups, people are in fact borrowing informal English uh, into their public pronouncements into their academic writing or, or whatever and not being sanctioned for it in the same way that's
1: right exactly so um, we present in the book uh, that when People from the dominant culture, uh, that is to say more directly, when white people code mesh (laughs) and borrow African-American English in professional and school settings, uh, they do not receive the same consequences that African-Americans who are African-American English speakers um, receive when they use African-American English. And that's very problematic. That is also an evidence, uh, we argue, of. The prejudicial nature of of this pedagogy that um, it puts one people or group of people um, in a superior position, whereas and this isn't across the board. That isn't to say that, let's say, when someone uses Appalachian English or Southern English or other varieties that might be um, uh, stigmatized as well, that they don't receive consequences. This is to say that when it comes to African-American English and standard English users who are white when they use African-American English in certain settings that they do not receive the consequences that African-American English uh, users receive. What's more is that um, at least the linguist uh, who writes in the book, Rusty Bear has shown that people often mishear um, the language that people use when they are raced or gendered in a certain way. So sometimes even standard English users who are African-American are often misheard as using African-American English when in fact they're using standard English. Now, the point of raising that is to point out that uh, race, racism and prejudice have a lot to do with the way in which we receive and perceive people's language
0: styles. Is it the case, you think, that when people use the non-standard, or non perhaps I should say non-prestige variety, do you feel that the the way in which people are are treated reflects an attitude on the part of hearers toward the language or to the group to which they belong,
1: um, or otherwise? It's it's intertwined, but I, I think it arises first and foremost from the group to which the language belongs. Um, So African-American English is is still stigmatized because African-American people uh, have historically been oppressed and stigmatized. So I think they are responding to the group. And I think that example that um, I alluded to earlier, when people mishear the language style of African-Americans, even when those individuals are speaking standard English, they're hearing a stigmatized version of language. They are responding to the group. Uh, or to the racial identity of that speaker as opposed to the language of the speaker. But it also shows that there is an extension from that prejudice against the group to the language of that group as a representation or expression of their um, culture and identity.
0: Precisely, yes. I mean, it, it strikes me that it might be the case that, to, so to speak, people who already have sufficient power in a sense who already have sufficient clout in the system can borrow as they please and to some extent confer prestige on their choices by the fact that they choose them
1: yes but 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 in this instance we're we're um we're speaking of of individuals who are who are in a um in a dominant or mainstream group or or do you believe that it's that even um, African-Americans, middle-class African-Americans, so to speak, um, can do the same thing.
0: Well, I don't really have a view. I mean, I was going to ask you, I was, two examples of of political uses are discussed, but one from Senator Chuck Grassley uh, and uh, another reference is made elsewhere to to President Obama's speech patterns, his rhetorical choices to some extent. And I wonder whether, whether you feel that the same, the, the kind of latitude that gets extended to white people in positions of power does to some extent get extended to the president, uh, at least by, if you like, mainstream society, obviously not by his most trenchant critics.
1: My first response would be to say no, that that latitude is not extended. As a matter of fact, um, the book that I'm working on now analyzes um the public's responses to Obama's um, language style and his speech habits. And it's very interesting <laughs> um, uh, the responses that they have. I don't want to give too much away about that book, but I do want to say this. Uh, it's been said over and over again that when Obama speaks in standard English and uses a, um, a academic style that he is not masculine enough, that he is um representing in a feminized discourse and this isn't said just by um, the lay public this is an argument that's been made in in Newsweek it's been made in the Washington Post uh, by certain columnists and I actually analyze why they believe this about o- Obama's um, use of, of standard English and um, uh, academic style and what's really interesting about this Chris I want to point out is that it presents a double bind for African-Americans. On the one hand, African-American men is the group that has in America the lowest uh, uh, school retention rate and the lowest literacy rates. And so Obama as a as a African-American male represents at the highest level of literacy. And yet he gets routinely criticized. Either he is Uh, criticized for being too professorial, too elitist in his language style, too academic, or he's criticized for being not manly enough in his rhetorical style. So what does that do for African-American men for whom Obama is held out as a role model? Um, It presents a dilemma. Do they acquire the school literacy habits that are supposed to be held out for them to, to achieve the status that Obama has achieved, or do they resist it in order to resist these very narrow and problematic criticisms and characterizations of Obama's language style? So no, to answer that question um, more directly and succinctly, I do not think that the same latitude that was given to Grassley was given to Barack Obama or other African Americans for that matter.
0: No, it's a fair point. I hope you don't mind me asking. I mean, it's something that sort of struck me as maybe the maybe the you know the ultimate demonstration of of how far this this prejudice is going to uh, extend, so to speak, would be that if if people find that their their president is not speaking in a manner that it, that is becoming, because even his prestige as an individual is not sufficient to to license these these usages.
1: I agree, even though he 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 um, uses African-American English um, all the time, but it's often ignored. Uh, and there are reasons for that. Another uh, linguist who I read a lot um, and and admire. Um, uh, Rosina lippi Green in her book, English um, with an accent, Language on Discrimination in the U.S., actually analyzes the 2008 campaign strategies of the Republicans and analyzes some of the revealed memos about how to profile Barack Obama as um, elitist and so forth and why his African-American English is often ignored um, because it goes against the elitist profile that um, was part of this was part of the counter strategy even though he uses African-American English often but on the other hand Michelle Obama As a frequent user of African-American English in public, hers has been uh, presented uh, more publicly and more uh, and more frequently. But what has happened is and and this was in the first campaign and a little bit in the second campaign and uh, in the 2012 campaign is that she was profiled as the angry black woman (laughs) and her discursive style was used as evidence of that.
0: Yes, I think the. uh It's a rather uh, rather dispiriting story one way or another. I won't won't make you uh, spill the entire contents of of your next book, uh, because there's so much more to say about this. Um, I mean, it seemed to me, for one thing, that the the arguments that you're putting forward for code meshing as a strategy apply, well, not only to Black English in the US, but also to any situation in which different varieties of language, particularly uh, ones where there are different power associations and different prestige associations come into contact. Um, and indeed uh Young Rivera exemplifies the method in a in a bilingual English Spanish classroom. Um how how general do you see the approach as being?
1: I think that it's it's very general because we're talking about a linguistic fact of life. What the what the educators have done who have adopted this um The the limited or reductive sense of code switching, switching according to context and change your language, is that that's not a linguistic fact of life. The linguistic linguistic fact of life is that many people um, who encounter or who are influenced by multiple languages or multiple varieties of one language, such as multiple varieties of English, use those varieties simultaneously all the time to to imagine that that these that this language does not affect the English usage of of the English speakers is very problematic. And it's it's just actually untrue uh, just on a human level. And so I I think it applies very broadly um, across across languages and across groups of people. Now, my own research and interest uh, happens to be solely on African Americans um, in in the U.S. And so, uh, I, I tend to, to to stick with that group. But the linguist in the in the book, Rusty Barrett, um, does talk about other um, peoples and other languages. Um, and my colleague Sharesh Kanagaraja, who theorizes code meshing among m- multilinguals. Argue something similar, um, and so if people are interested in how code meshing is um, is theorized and observed among multilinguals and how it could actually help us understand the language habits of Americans, I would actually um, send them to Sharesh Konnagaraj's. Uh, work, especially um, one of his essays on um, code meshing uh, teachable strategies, uh, and that is purely in a multilingual context.
0: I was going to say that I mean a general analogy kind of suggests itself between um, code meshing in the classroom and, and bilingual education in in general, which I mean has also been argued to have both obvious and non-obvious advantages and. Also, to present certain challenges and require a degree of commitment from all concerned. Is that a kind of analogy you would encourage?
1: I would. And here's why. Recently, I was asked to review a couple of research articles that dealt with um, bilingual education and code code switching in a non-U.S. context. This was um, um, education that was um going on in other countries. And what was revealed in uh, at least one of the studies uh, that I read was that allowing students to do something like what I've been calling code meshing actually facilitates their growth in English um, acquisition much more than if they were asked um, to leave them. Uh, or or to not code mesh, to actually uh, just learn English outside or in isolation of their native language. And I'm 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 I was very taken by that study. It seemed to be very well done, um, and it was not just that I, I agree with it, but but it was a longitudinal study done over a period of years that actually yielded the results that the best way to teach uh, multiple languages is not to keep them separate, but to allow them to commingle.
0: I guess the um, the, the analogy might meet with some. Resistance or, or attract controversy on uh, if the controversy about African American English as a language versus a dialect versus variety etc is in any sense still a, still a live issue. Do you feel that people will take more more persuading of the of the analogy with bilingual education, or that the evidence from the advantages of bilingualism would uh, would help to underscore the point of, of teaching code meshing?
1: Well, I think that um, I think that your question um, raises an interesting problem, actually, um, for code meshing advocates because of the history of of the debate of African-American English, whether it's a dialect, whether it's a variety, whether it's a language, um, et cetera, et cetera, and whether or not it can stand on par analogously with um, other confirmed uh, languages. Here's what we say in the book. We say that African-American vernacular, Black English, Ebonics, African-American language, and African-American English all refer to about the same thing, the ways in which African-American English speakers communicate and the observable patterns of, uh, of this language uh, in America. And so we sort of stay away from the debate that, debate and accept it as true that African-American English is a language and it is also a variety of English.
0: I suppose my, my question is in some sense political in nature. Um, do, you, do you feel that there are disadvantages to, to taking a, a firm or defending a firm position on that in terms of the, the very sort of practical goal of getting your proposal? Taken seriously by the people who would actually be able to implement it at the at the chalk face,
1: but I guess I don't see what the consequences are that are implied in your question, like <laughs> what are the consequences if they didn't take it seriously and and, and why wouldn't they?
0: No, I really wondered whether, whether you felt that that was whether, whether in some sense uh, to position this as a an instance of bilingual education and, and appeal to that sort of parallel. Literature and explore those, those possible benefits, things like you know executive function and so on to
1: I understand to yes yes, I understand your question um, and it's a it's a it's a tough one um, because in some senses to argue or or say that um, teaching african American English is synonymous with Bilingual education and that it's a separate language from English in my particular version of the argument could be problematic because I'm saying that it is that that the two varieties are not mutually exclusive that that we exaggerate the difference between African-American English and standard English. And so in that sense, you know, people could argue, argue that if they're not distinct languages, and they're not as different as we would see perhaps Spanish and German as being, then how could you argue for blending them? Because we don't argue for blending, say, a lot of another language, uh, Portuguese, for instance, with English, and then turning that in as a paper or using that in in public spaces that are primarily um, governed by by the use of, of English. So in that sense, yes. But in another sense, absolutely not. And there are two reasons for it. One is that even if African-American English is its own language system, own uh, language and variety distinct from standard English, they can still be compatible. They can still have similar structural uh, similarities, etc. We often think about in this regard, Italian and Spanish for instance. Um, and I remember when I learned Spanish, it was really easy for me to pick up on Italian because of the similarities in the language. They're not completely the same, but there is a lot of uh, overlap. And I, and I sort of think about, in a bilingual sense, um, standard English and African-American English um, as operating along the same paradigm. But then there's one more thing to point out. The research is growing on the mutuality between languages and the ways in which multilinguals communicate with one another. So we often think of bilingual education as people who are learning to change according to context, again, like like code switching. So I'm going to use one language here and I'm going to learn another particularly distinct language to use. In other settings. But the the emerging research on uh, multilingual communication is how they how different language systems and terms, ideas, vocabularies often intermix among multilinguals, that the idea of take up is much more. Uh, effective when talking about multilingual discourse than error, for instance. So if a group of multilinguals are having a conversation and one of them um, uses a term or um, a word or something from uh, a specific language that is not taken up, by the others in the group, then that is an instance of uh, what we might think of as error, but not error in the sense that it's wrong, but just in the fact that it wasn't taken up. And that doesn't mean that what wasn't taken up won't be taken up later. You know, it's just dropped for the moment or in this particular communicative act. And I think that that's much more um, of a resilient um, theorization of the way in which communication happens across languages. And so in that sense, when we think about Pushing the paradigm of bilingual education, maybe we should think of it instead as multilingual education instead of uh, 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 just two
0: absolutely yeah um, I mean it uh, strikes me a related point is that as is I think also discussed at various points in the book, there is this high level of, of mutual comprehensibility uh, not least because uh, the the mainstream culture has so much influence from African-American English in it that to a large extent and particularly in a, in a broad international context, it is inevitably going to uh, influence the, the standard language and in some sense uh, arrive in the, uh, the prestige form by, by stealth, if, if not for the necessarily for the benefit of the people who speak it. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, even though when I have conversations with people, uh, I often refer to my understanding of sociolinguistics um, I should definitely say I'm not a linguist and I'm not a sociolinguist either I read in those areas for the purposes of 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 making this argument and understanding the function of language um, but 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 it's not uh, an area of training what is an area of training of mine is on race and race relations and so when we talk about the ways in which the language of a oppressed people african American English, for instance, even though it is um, broadly uh, a part of standard english, I have to ask the question as a, as a um, African American studies scholar, why is it that those features of African American English and its influence of standard English is not broadly recognized or accepted or praised when in fact Um, African-American English rhetorically helps the effectivity of standard English. So because we have a narrow version of standard English in our idealized sense of the term that excludes the influence of African-American English and and other varieties of English as well, it presents a, a, a problematic, narrow, prescriptive version of that language system.
0: I guess a, a point that you make on that is that, that to some extent, the, the perception of African-American English is that it gets compartmentalised and treated or acknowledged as being suitable for particular purposes, like, for example, in music, and yet doesn't get used in, so to speak, serious discourse because people have been trained in this in this pure code-switching paradigm and tend not to, with, with a few n- pre-notable exceptions, tend not to mesh...
1: That's where they or they tend not to acknowledge that they're meshing or they tend, or they tend to try to reduce um, the meshing. But I think that it goes back to slavery, to be quite honest with you, where um, uh, African-Americans or enslaved Africans at the time could be entertainers on the plantation. They could communicate in uh, service roles, but they were not seen as equal. I think those ideas sustain or remain today that entertainment, uh, music, even comedy, etc., where you hear a, um, a number of African-American English users in the public sphere, but they're, even if they earn um, high salaries, they are still in a kind of quote unquote service position to uh, make the mainstream laugh or to entertain. But the serious domains of formal writing, journalism, et cetera, um, uh, it is argued by educators uh, that those spaces. Do not accommodate African-American English, but in fact, they do, as I point out in the book and show examples of where this actually um, happens um, quite routinely, more routinely than we uh, uh, want to give um, credit to or acknowledge that African-American English um, is part of the growing cultural literacy um, in America uh, and is often used to compose in very um, very serious, uh, very serious prose. So it's not—it's not entirely true that it's just a few isolated cases um, where African American English is used in these uh, in these serious spaces. It's actually more widely used than we recognize.
0: Um, that gives me a chance to ask a question, which I wanted about the, the, if you like, the domain of that of that code machine, which is that, well, you and many other scholars in African American studies are. are Pushing code, code, very firmly into the into the academic domain. Do you feel it's the case that there are expectations about which topics within academia you can you can write about in that in that way? Do you feel it's the case that people in, for argument's sake, um, hard sciences are reluctant to uh, use the kind of informality that might actually be expected elsewhere? That's a great question, I mean that's an awesome question because
1: it might seem to be that um academics in the humanities, for instance, in English or rhetoric um, or even education um, as a as a social science um, would 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 find more um acceptability in using Um, African-American English or in code meshing, as opposed to someone in uh, the fields of biology or chemistry or math. That's beyond the scope of what I've studied so far. But I do want to point out two things that are suggestive of of a, a response. One is that I have read others who have studied the writing of people in formal formal settings. For example, one. One uh, study observed the writing of a police officer who was writing very formal police reports, and he often used his own style. Uh, He often used African-American English. And when asked why he did that, he said because it it sounded better Um, and his reports were not sent back to him. He was not asked to revise. He was a very successful person at, at at his job and and highly liked uh and praised. that's one example that shows that um it's not restrictive to creative endeavors in um, certain um humanistic fields. but another one is the a study that I did in my uh, classroom. I had the students in a writing class to study the informal, formal, and middle register communications, both written and spoken uh, of an employer um, or a professional in the area in which they intended to go. So uh, nurses, students who were studying nursing would study nurses and their communication at work, um, doctors, um, health Other health areas and health was was one of the um, biggest areas uh, in this class, but also um, in other areas. And what we found overall, and this was a very informal study, it hasn't been written up. It's just something that I did in my class a couple of times. But what we found in all of the classes is that the ideas and perceptions that we went into, um, took into the interviews with the professionals were not the kinds of communications that they actually employed in their offices, that it was much more informal, even when the communication genre itself or mode was thought to be or framed as being formal, it was much more informal and they used many, many um, styles of communication in one uh, email or inter office memo or even a a, um, intra office communication. So while, There may be reluctance. There is also evidence to suggest that um, code meshing is a um, more widely and broadly deployed uh, communication activity.
0: That's um, some uh, some fascinating work. I mean, it struck me that, so to speak, the argument against code meshing in a biology paper in Nature was going to be we can't do that because this has strict general rules, and the argument for would be, well, actually, everybody is doing it anyway, they just don't acknowledge it. Right. <laughs> just yeah. as that is the case for a lot of um, right. legal writing. Um, I want to turn in the last portion of this interview uh, to some of the, the practicalities of the method. A particular challenge which uh, Kim Brown Lovejoy discusses in his chapters of the book is maybe how to teach something that's potentially beyond the teacher's capability. Um, In this case, sort of encouraging students to use communicative resources that the teacher doesn't necessarily command. I wonder, do you see that as a a real challenge that needs to be confronted, or do you feel it's more a matter of people being in their comfort zone to some extent when teaching in the the current pedagogies?
1: Uh, I think that it is a challenge, but I think that it should be Uh, viewed as a welcomed challenge, that um, teachers should embrace the opportunities to um, become more familiar with the linguistic repertoires of their students and uh, of themselves. I have been an English teacher for a long time. I trained as a high school English teacher um, some 18 years ago, and when I taught high school it didn't just come trippingly off the tongue, and that's not just because I'm African American and have African American English in my background. That's because no English teacher that I know of can just teach the language without reference to some academic material, without a textbook, um, without reminders of what um, an object pronoun is or subject pronoun and whether one can be the subject of a sentence or not. That these things. We do remember, but we often need um, refreshers, reminders, etc. So teaching is not a static activity. And I say that somewhat emphatically because the same holds true for becoming acquainted with understanding, learning about and refreshing our um, notions about what other varieties of Englishes are. Uh, African-American English as well. So for a teacher to say that's not my background or I don't have the linguistic facility is in some ways a cop out. And I think that um, Kim Lovejoy is a a perfect example of this. He's a white guy, but he doesn't shy away from teaching African-American rhetoric and African-American rhetorical styles. And while some of those styles are not um, native to his own language and that he would not probably ever use. He doesn't say that I'm not going to ever use it. It's always a possibility that these can become a part of his discursive uh, styles as well. And that's something that I think teachers who are interested in adopting the pedagogy and also the ideology should embrace.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly my impression from what's what's said elsewhere in the book that there is there's work to be done in in broadening the understanding of the the rules of African-American English. I mean, right at the beginning of the book, Rusty Barrett gives this example where he he cites instances from Catherine Stockett's book, The Help, (laughs) which garnered a claim for its portrayal of African-American English, but is actually uh, wrong in the sense of failing to abide by the grammatical system of that language. (laughs) So obviously it's it's quite a challenge even for literary critics to... uh, uh, to know whether somebody who's who claims to be writing in a different variety is is actually getting it right even in an appropriately relative sense
1: that's right and that's one of the that's one of my favorite examples in the book um you know because he phrases it in a very interesting way to say, how is it that a uh white female who gets african American English wrong gets praised for it, but an african American who uses african american english correctly gets criticized for it. I think that's an that's awesome way to present the paradox that we're talking about. Um, you're pointing out that example in connection with what we had just previously talked about. It's interesting because Rusty Barrett himself is white from um, the rural working class, but yet has is the linguist that's showing, pointing out the patterns of African-American English and has a, a depth of knowledge in it. So it's not... African-American English and knowledge of it is not um, essentialized to one group of people that, you know, it can be uh, understood by multiple groups and even used by people who are not African-American.
0: And, and increasingly is. Um, but I guess from an, from an academic point of view, it's something that uh, people are going to need to work on to, to take full advantage of the opportunities that you're describing. Right. Exactly. Um, On a a practical note, what would you like to see happen as a consequence of this book being out there?
1: There are two things that I would like to see. I think that more work needs to be done in classrooms on code meshing. That is to say, um, there needs to be more evidence, more explicit evidence of teachers consciously um, learning about and understanding and using the rhetorical power of African-American English in standard English contexts—that um, That is one thing that I definitely would like to see. The other thing I would like to see is a reduction in the prejudice against African-American English and um, African-Americans. Um, and uh, that reduction in prejudice would mean to me that African-American English users in the public sphere in professional settings and in academic settings would not be stigmatized. And um, those people would not face um, consequences for using that language variety.
0: Is your work going forward focusing in in support of those those goals, or do your immediate research priorities take you elsewhere? Uh, My
1: immediate research uh, dovetail on the idea of code switching, but actually how it affects African-American men, uh, from a gender perspective so in the book that I referenced earlier that I'm working on I only mention code switching um, in the chapter that I'm in which I'm talking about Barack Obama but I enlarge it beyond grammatical um, features and it's more in the realm of rhetoric and how the rhetorical use of African American English is actually a gendering uh, mechanism for, for black men but that said I am working on um, developing a Uh, more large scale, uh, somewhat social scientific study of multilingual users of code meshing. And I want to study both in speaking and writing how multilinguals use code meshing and whether or not it facilitates the goals of uh, university learning uh, better than code switching or isolated um, um, training in and just strict standard English or what what we what we understand as the English language. So that is a, a more um, a large scale study that I have not embarked upon because uh, I'm creating a team of individuals to help design the study and then to execute it. And it will be a longitudinal study over the course of a, a couple of
0: years. It sounds like a very exciting project, and I, I get the impression I'm probably guilty of underselling the book as it stands as a as a resource and as an inspiration for actual uh, teaching planning. Um, because there are your know, your co-authors are are embracing these ideas and and already you know, pushing them forward and putting them into into practice. I think particularly your sister is that, not
1: That's right. That's right. But 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 you are correct also in that the book is largely ideological. Those chapters on pedagogy are serving the ends of saying um, primarily that code meshing is valuable, is viable. um, It should not be restricted. Even the the college teaching um, section, which looks at uh, Kim Bryan's um, classrooms, they're not templates for what to do in a classroom, but they are models of what has been done using code meshing. And they're supposed to sort of persuade um, individuals that, yes, I can do this, in my classroom.
0: Well, I hope that the, uh, I hope people will suitably be persuaded because I'd be very interested to see the, uh, the effect of this over a much wider um, domain of application. I have to close now. Thank you so much for your time and for, for sharing with us uh, with those very interesting ideas.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris.
0: I've been talking with Vashawn Young about other people's English, code meshing, code switching, and African American literacy. This is Chris Cummins from New Books and Language saying thank you for listening.